Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Our scripture reading uh, this morning is from John chapter 3 and verses 1 through 15. John chapter 3 and the first 15 verses, you'll find this, the church Bible on page 887, and on the highly recommended large print Bible, it's on page 1055, 1055. Uh, This passage this morning, uh, as many passages in John's gospel do, echoes uh, words from the prologue to the gospel, the first 18 verses. And in that prologue, uh, John had said that as many as received Christ, he gave the uh, authority, the right to become children of God who were born not of the will of man, but born of God. And that is the theme that uh, we find here in chapter 3. The story so far in John's gospel is that Jesus has been baptized as the Messiah, the Holy Spirit has come upon Him for this new stage of His life and ministry in public, and He has now come to Jerusalem for the first Passover celebration of His public ministry. If you know John's gospel, you know that the way John structures His gospel is around a series of visits that Jesus makes to Jerusalem for the Old Testament feasts. It's structured differently in that sense from the first three Gospels. And on this occasion, uh, He is visited uh, one night by a man called Nicodemus. Uh, I've given the sermon the title, uh, The Blind Theologian. And any of you who are theology students seeing that title might have expected uh, that I was in a very eccentric way going to give a lecture on the famous fourth century theologian of Alexandria, Didymus the Blind. Uh, But I'm not that eccentric. This is a sermon on Nicodemus. And one of the interesting things about Nicodemus, um, scholars never agree with each other, do they? That's part of the definition of being a scholar. And scholars don't agree about this, but I think the best evidence is that Nicodemus was actually a very rare name in Jerusalem. I think there's less than a handful of illustrations of people in Jerusalem being called Nicodemus in the first century. And one of the interesting things about this name Nicodemus is it was like one of those names you tend to keep in the family. We don't do this as much as Americans do this, but I know people who are the sixth and the seventh uh, in the lineage. And the family that seemed to use this rather rare name, Nicodemus, was the Gurion family, uh, who were top brass in Jerusalem. Uh, They were Eton and Oxford, one might say, Um, or I'm sure there's an Aberdeen equivalent of that 
Um, the, the very interesting thing to me is if all that is true, those of us who are my generation and perhaps a little younger are interested in the history of the state of Israel will remember that the name of the father of the modern state of Israel and its first prime minister was David Ben-Gurion. It's interesting to think that uh, perhaps one of his uh, ancestors came to Jesus at night. And most of that's irrelevant, uh, but it, it is interesting, isn't it? So, let's read the Scriptures. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to Him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again or born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. And uh, if you can read footnote number six, you'll notice that it indicates the Greek word for wind is the same as the word for spirit, as is also true in the Hebrew of the Old Testament. So, there's a subtle play on words here. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So, it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life." Now, there are many wonderful features in John's gospel, and I think one of the wonderful features is that he, he tells the story of Jesus' ministry in a way that makes it relatively easy for almost all of us to be able to see what He's describing. Uh, we're used to thinking that way in the book of Revelation that also seems to have been written by John, where the, the big word is, is look and see. But although we might say in the Gospels the big word is listen and hear, John does tell these narratives about Jesus in a way that 
enables us, for example, to eavesdrop on the conversations. Um, in, in many ways, he is the original of a great movie producer or director who provides us with various camera angles and long-range pictures and different kinds of focus um, and wide-angle shots so that what we have in John's gospel is a, is a kind of surround sound and clear vision of what Jesus is doing, and His gospel is punctuated by a series of these conversations that Jesus has with different individuals. And you'll notice that running through this particular section is Nicodemus says one thing, and then the typical language John uses is, and Jesus answered him, and Jesus answered him. And he begins with a long-range camera view of Nicodemus. He's coming presumably uh, from the West End of Jerusalem to wherever it is that Jesus is staying during the Passover. It's interesting that uh, he was even knowledgeable about where Jesus might have been staying during the Passover, and he's seeking Jesus out. And the opening two verses basically focus entirely, uh, slowly, on introducing us to who this man is. And there's this rich series of descriptions of this very extraordinary man by the name of Nicodemus, and it's clear that John is intrigued by him. He mentions him not only here, but later on in chapter 7, where Nicodemus comes to the defense of Jesus, and then, of course, most famously in chapter 19, where Nicodemus and his friend Joseph of Arimathea ask for the body of the Lord Jesus and bury it in Joseph's tomb. So, from almost the beginning of the gospel, almost the end of the gospel, John keeps introducing us to Nicodemus, and in a way, he leaves us with questions. I said scholars don't agree about many things, and actually, if you read the scholars who have spent decades studying John's gospel, they can't come to any agreement about what is John eventually saying about Nicodemus and uh, we may return to that before the end today. And then Jesus begins to come into the camera angle, and most of the rest of the passage, you see both Jesus and Nicodemus sitting there, uh, perhaps on the roof of the house, perhaps the evening breezes blowing, which makes Jesus refer to the sound of the wind. But then by the end of the section we've read, uh, Nicodemus seems to disappear altogether. And in the last couple of verses, he's gone, and he doesn't appear again in the whole of this narrative. And John goes on, I think, in verse 16 to himself expound for us, the readers, what Jesus meant when He said eventually to Nicodemus that as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, in verse 14, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him 
may have eternal life. So, I want to follow these two camera angles and to think, first of all, about Nicodemus as the night visitor. Um, John's gospel plays around a great deal with the ideas of darkness and light, night and day. And it's possible there's this double entendre here. Uh, it's certainly true that uh, learned Jews often studied the Scriptures at night, but there's this atmospheric description of Nicodemus that he comes to Jesus, whom we know from the prologue is the light that brings light to men and women. He's come into the world to enlighten us, and Nicodemus comes out of the darkness to Jesus, who is the light of the world. And what does John tell us about him? Well, I think he tells us, first of all, that this is a man of very considerable quality, and not just that he is top drawer, but for the fact that he actually comes to Jesus. He doesn't send Jesus an invitation or a missive to come to the other side of town to have an interview with him. However discreetly he may come, however he may not want anyone else to know that he's coming, there is something endearing about the fact that he, a man of such quality and substance, is willing to come to speak to Jesus and to call him, notice, rabbi. He knew, he must have known that this man was a woodworker, um, a laborer from the boonies, from Nazareth, from Galilee. And as John tells us later on, Jesus knew exactly who Nicodemus was. But he has this grace to come to Jesus and to call him Rabbi, here are the things that we know about you. And not only call him Rabbi, but recognize his divine commission. I mean, this is a startling statement when you contrast it with the people who are described at the end of chapter 2 who wouldn't believe in Jesus unless he started showing them special signs. We know, he says, that you have come from God and that you are a teacher. So, he recognizes his divine commission. There's something very distinctive about the Lord Jesus, and he acknowledges Jesus' wonderful miracles. You have done these amazing things, and this is an attestation. I believe, says Nicodemus, this is an attestation that God is with you, because no one could do these amazing things that you have done, he says, unless God is with him. I mean, it's an amazing statement for this man to make. If you know the Old Testament, this, this in a sense was the hallmark of the servants of God in the Old Testament, that God was with them, that God was with Joseph, that God was with Daniel, that God was with David, even through I, I walk through the valley of the shadow of deep darkness, you are with me. And all of this, it seems to me, bespeaks something very attractive about this man, uh, that he is a man of very considerable quality. 
And this is just the beginning, as I've hinted, because he's going to defend Jesus in chapter 7. He's, he's, going, to, he's going to take a, an amazing amount of ointment to anoint the dead body of Jesus in chapter 19. I think John portrays this man as a man of great distinction, but also a man of tremendous quality, and not just quality of character, but a man of considerable accomplishments. Uh, he, he makes clear, doesn't he, John, that Jesus uh, understood that this man was a Pharisee. Remember how the Apostle Paul says uh, to King Agrippa that from early on in his life, he had committed himself to following what he calls the strictest sect of our religion. He was in the minority of the strictest set, absolutely committed to uh, day by day, moment by moment, working out the pleasure of God in his life. Uh, in a, in a minute way, wanting to pay attention to the will of God, to follow it through. That's, that's really what it meant to be a Pharisee. And at the same time, he was a member of the ruling council, the Sanhedrin, the, the council of 70 who uh, ruled the people. So, whatever age he was, he was a man who had, um, who had reached the top an amazing individual. And you'll notice that Jesus later on in this passage refers to him as the teacher in Israel, not just a teacher, but the teacher, the theologian. Um, you know, if you go to conferences, some of you go to conferences in whatever your uh, vocation is, and if you go to large conferences, it's a sociological phenomenon. You'll always, you'll always be able to recognize the people who matter. They're surrounded by little groups of acolytes. Are there people pawing at them in different ways? It's just, it's, just a, it's just a sociological phenomenon. Actually, happens in Christian conferences. I'm sure when, when David and his family were at Keswick last year, there were people kind of, that's David Gibson. He's, he's one of the speakers. And I have very little doubt that when Nicodemus walked down the streets of Jerusalem, uh, there were whispers. Uh, you know who that is, don't you? That's the. And hey, it wouldn't happen in Aberdeen. <laughs> you know, you walk down the streets of Aberdeen if you're one of the senior professors in theology, nobody will recognize you. But in Jerusalem, in Jerusalem, everybody would recognize you. And as I say, there's maybe a little clue in the opening words that, that He came to Jesus by night, that there's that some kind of darkness surrounds Him. But that's made even clearer, I think, by the verses that precede this. There's a, there's a kind of parallel statement that's meant to draw our attention to the real truth about Nicodemus. Um, it's this, that there were those who believed in Jesus because of the miracles, because of the signs He did, but Jesus didn't entrust Himself to them because they weren't really His. 
And John says, he knew what was in a man, or he knew what was in man. And the next statement is a parallel statement, isn't it? There was a man. That's the first line of a song, isn't it? There was a man. And it's, it's, in, the, it's in the very vibrations of the atmosphere here that Nicodemus is one of those men. For all of his personal qualities, for all of his amazing accomplishments, he is still in the dark. He does seem to have some convictions about Jesus, um, and he has his own interpretation of what these convictions mean. And it's just at this point that uh, John, the director, quickly changes the camera angle, and it focuses now on Jesus, and Nicodemus is there as a kind of foil asking Jesus questions, but it's what Jesus says that is really so significant. And actually what Jesus says is, Nicodemus, you do not begin to understand the Christian gospel. You can have all of these qualities, um, and you can have all of these accomplishments, and still not be in the kingdom of God, not be under the authority of the Lord, not experience the eternal life which Nicodemus would have understood was part and parcel of the coming of the kingdom of God, the membership in the kingdom of God, to which all believing people in the old covenant were looking for words. And Jesus stops him in his tracks. I find this um, must have been just overwhelming for Nicodemus, that you could actually be all of these things and not actually be a believer, not actually be in the kingdom. You know, I could spend the rest of the time just telling you stories after stories of people I've known or met or heard of who have been people of outstanding quality and amazing, absolutely amazing accomplishments, who have had to discover they're not in the kingdom of God. A very, one of my longest standing friends was called one day, he was a minister in London, he was called one day on the phone by a nurse who wasn't a Christian, but who knew about him and about his ministry to ask him if he would come and see a person who, if I told you her name, I think everybody over 40 would immediately recognize the name. Uh, a, a woman who was, who was honored basically with the highest honor the queen could bestow on her. A woman whose name is mentioned with praise everywhere that name is known. And the nurse said, please come and see her because she has no assurance that when she dies, which was what she was doing, there is any prospect of her going to heaven. My guess is you probably could have not found a woman in the United Kingdom of superior dignity and greater accomplishment 
than this woman. And for obvious reasons, I wouldn't tell you who she is, so you just have to take it on trust. But my friend went to her and spoke her with God's grace, the Spirit's help, into the kingdom of God. She was a devout person of amazing quality, extraordinary accomplishments that still are all over our country. But she wasn't in the kingdom. She wasn't a Christian. And so she had no assurance that she would ever see eternal life. And that's what Jesus wants to impress upon Nicodemus. I think, I think that's why he stops him in his tracks. It's as though he's saying, Nicodemus, I've read your CV. And the good news about your CV is the longer you live, the more things you're able to stuff on it. And it's as though Jesus goes through every single element in his CV and says to Nicodemus, you need to understand none of these things gain you entrance into the kingdom of God. And that's the point at which we've moved in reading this story from thinking about Nicodemus, who turns out to be the blind theologian, the night visitor, to Jesus, who turns out to Nicodemus's surprise, not just to be a rabbi, but to be his spiritual counselor, his spiritual physician, and we might say that the very first thing that Jesus does is that He diagnoses Nicodemus's heart condition, and he, he begins to explain it to him. And you know those words in Hebrews chapter 4 describing the Word of God that says it's sharper than any two-edged sword, it just cleaves through joints and marrow. It opens up the secrets of our hearts and exposes the real truth about us. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He does it with, I think, amazing grace. Um, sometimes we say you need to be cruel to be kind, but I think here you might even say that, that in a sense, Jesus is not cruel here. He is kind to be kind. It's not kind it's not kind to tell somebody who is sick you're fine. It's certainly not kind to tell somebody who thinks he is fine that he really is fine. And so Jesus stops him in his tracks, and he does it, you'll notice in, in verse 3, our, our uh, English Standard Version, probably mainly translated by Americans, but it's the English Standard Version. Um, says Jesus answered him. It could be Jesus replied to him, but you'll notice there are these parallel lines in this passage. Jesus answered him, Jesus answered him, Jesus answered him. But Nicodemus wasn't asking any question at this point. Interesting, isn't it? No question mark. We know that you're a teacher sent from God. Nobody could do these signs unless God was with him. Jesus answered him. You put it this way, what Jesus did was He answered the question that Nicodemus wasn't asking, and that's what stopped him in his tracks. There's, there's from Nicodemus's point of view, almost total disconnect between what he's been saying to Jesus. 
So it's like, like, get a hold of Jesus. You're not listening to these nice things I'm saying to you. But he goes graciously straight to the point, doesn't he? And he tells him, Nicodemus, um, none of these things I know about you is of any significance when it comes to entry into the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, your greatest need is to be born, as our translation has it, again, or as I think probably we're meant to understand it, your greatest need is to be born from above. You need to understand, use the words of a famous such bishop of Canterbury in the 20th century, William Temple, you need to understand, Nicodemus, that the only thing you contribute to salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. And that's your problem. And that's why Jesus, as it were, pulls the rug from underneath him and all these compliments to go directly to say to him what presumably nobody had ever said to him. Nicodemus, unless the person is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. And you'll notice it's prefaced as a number of things in John's gospel are by these, these words, tell you the truth, or for us oldies, amen, amen, truly, truly, I say to you. And it's not that anything Jesus says isn't true, but of all the true things He says, there are some things that have absolute central priority, and this is what He's emphasizing to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a person is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And he patiently explains in this dialogue with Nicodemus what this birth from above, this new birth really is. First thing he emphasizes is that it is necessary it is absolutely necessary. You must be born again. Unless you're born again, you won't be able to see the kingdom of God. And this is where this whole conversation uh, recorded by John becomes so delicious, because Nicodemus, who thinks he can see, hears Jesus saying, unless you're born from above, you'll not be able to see the kingdom of God. And his response to Jesus is, Jesus I don't see that. It's just exactly, it's exactly where religious people who are not in the kingdom actually are. They don't see that if they are to enter the kingdom of God, what they need is not personal quality of character or a litany of accomplishments they need what they cannot provide for themselves, a birth that comes from heaven. He is blind. I remember driving, this is so vivid in my memory, I was driving to Salcote's Baptist Church. Yes, Salcote's Baptist Church in Ayrshire to preach one Sunday morning, donkeys years ago, turned on the car radio to listen to the morning service. 
was amazed that there were two people reading John chapter 3, and I thought, we're really going to get something worthwhile listening. I, I hope the sermon isn't too long for me to get to the end before I've got to go and preach myself. And then the sermon began. Now, said the minister, you will notice that we had John chapter 3 read by two voices this morning. I wonder if you noticed what was really significant about that conversation. Wow, I thought. He said, the really significant thing about that conversation is that Jesus and Nicodemus would have used each other's names. I thought, you mean you don't see what is really significant about this conversation? That Jesus' whole burden is Nicodemus? You need to be born again? That the really important thing is, it was so nice to be able to use our Christian names, Jesus. I hope we'll see you again in Jerusalem. It, it is beyond our imagination how blind the very best people can be to what is their absolute need, because they are powerless, says Jesus, to enter the kingdom of God without this birth from heaven. It is, says Jesus, absolutely necessary, and it is universally necessary. There are no exceptions whatsoever. Unless anyone is born from above, it is impossible for that person to see or enter the kingdom of God. And the reason He gives is because flesh gives birth only to flesh. Ants don't give birth to giraffes. This is something that you cannot accomplish yourself. And I think that's where he breaks into Nicodemus's heart, because Nicodemus, if he's going to ask Jesus anything, is going to ask the same question the rich young ruler asked him. What do I need to do to have life in the kingdom of God, eternal life? And at least at this stage in his life, he just was not able to take in that what was an absolute necessity for him if he was going to be in God's kingdom, to be a Christian believer, was something that he could not provide for himself. And there's a reason that Jesus emphasizes this, because until Nicodemus understands this, that what he most needs is what he cannot provide for himself, what he has no resources to provide for himself, then he will never understand why it is necessary for the Son of Man to be lifted up as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, for people to look to him and to live. He's perfectly capable of doing it. Perhaps he needs a little help from Jesus but he's perfectly capable of doing it for himself. And so, in addition to emphasizing the necessity of the new birth, Jesus also, you notice, emphasizes its sovereignty. How can this be, says Nicodemus? Oh, Nicodemus, you're absolutely right. He says, Jesus, I, I don't see this. The reason I don't see this is because I, I don't I don't see why it needs to be this way. Uh, can, 
Can a man enter into his mother's womb and be born a second time? And Jesus, maybe the wind is blowing in the background, rustling in the leaves there in the evening in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, do you hear that wind, Nicodemus? You don't know whether it came from north or south or east or west. You don't know where it's going. Um, it moves not according to your will. It moves sovereignly. And the only way you know that it's there is by the sound, by the effect of it on everything that it comes into contact with. So it is, he says, with everyone who is born of the Spirit of God. Now, what's the point here? The point is humbling, isn't it? To be the best of men or women or student and to be told, you do not have the resources in you to belong to Jesus Christ in many hearts, raises a kind of, I do, and I will show it to you. And sometimes when I've encountered people who have responded in that way, I've said, humor me for a minute. Just because I care about you, humor me for a minute. Even if you do only for the next 15 minutes, show me that you can do it by trusting in Jesus Christ. Just, just do it for 15 minutes. And if this is the way it strikes me, then that's, that's really the challenge, is just, just reassure yourself that you can trust in Jesus Christ. Just do it for 15 minutes, and then you'll know that when you need to do it later on, you'll be able to do it. And it's not possible to do it, is it? Because the resources aren't in you. And so, in this, in this very patient way, this very gracious way, I mean, some of us would have been flaming mad with Nicodemus banging his head against the wall and saying, do you not understand what I'm saying here? Jesus is patiently probing, showing Nicodemus how sick he is, and that actually what he needs more than anything else in all the world the only way he will understand why God sent his Son into the world so that our sins might be forgiven and that we would have eternal life is because this is not something that we can accomplish out of our own resources. And it's not only the sending of the Son we can't accomplish to die for our sins. It's the ability to respond to him in faith and repentance and trust him see the kingdom of God and enter the kingdom of God and know that we belong to Him. This dear lady, dame of the British Empire, had tried and tried and tried, but it wasn't in her. It wasn't in Nicodemus. And the truth of the matter is that if I'm not a Christian believer, it's not in me either. But you see, Jesus is saying, it's in Him. It's in God. That He's not only lifting up His Son to die on the cross for us, but He's sending down His Spirit to work in us, to 
so that we will be born, as Jesus says, of water and the Spirit. It's probably an allusion back to Ezekiel chapter 36, that when the Spirit comes graciously, sovereignly, seeing our need, seeing that we are conscious of that need, what He does is He he, he cleanses our affections so that we want Christ. Interesting, there's nothing that Nicodemus says here that gives you any indication he wants Christ or needs Christ. That's what it means to be born of water. Born of the Spirit means that not only are those desires changed, but mysteriously, sovereignly, graciously find ourselves empowered. We cannot but now trust in Jesus Christ. And we cry out to Him. And we say not, you are a great teacher, a marvelous worker of miracles. I esteem you so highly. But Lord Jesus Christ, be like that serpent sign that was raised on the cross when the Israelites were plagued and told if they looked, they would live and be delivered from their plague. And that's how John finishes this section. And as you get to the end of the section, we're kind of left asking, did Nicodemus just leave? What happened to Nicodemus. I said the scholars who've been studying John's gospel for decades are at loggerheads about what happened to Nicodemus. But you see what that means? It means that if it were really important for you and for me to know what happened to Nicodemus, John would have told us. And that what he's saying is, it's not what happened to Nicodemus that really matters. It's what happens to you, dear reader, dear hearer. Uh, what are you trusting in? Have you discovered your powerlessness? But the only thing you will ever contribute to your salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. And that therefore what you need is for God in all His grace to come and touch your heart draw you to faith in Jesus Christ. So, a great preacher in the 18th century. Many of you know his name. He preached actually in Dundee. I'm not sure if he ever preached in Aberdeen. A man by the name of George Whitfield. He used to constantly preach on this passage. One day, a woman of some quality came to him and said, Mr. Whitfield, why are you always preaching on these words, you must be born again. And he said, Madam, because you must. That's what Jesus was teaching Nicodemus. That's what He's teaching us. Makes us conscious of our spiritual bankruptcy, but gives us the hope that the Spirit will work upon us as we see our need and bring us to faith in the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You again for Your Word. We thank You that 
it too, like our Lord Jesus, is, is living and sharp, and it breaks through. We can't fully understand or explain how this is the case, but it breaks through all our assumptions about ourselves and our innate desire to trust in what we can accomplish in order to qualify for your pleasure, and so not to be able to see that there is nothing that we can do that will bring you pleasure, because we are so paralyzed in our sinfulness that the only thing that will bring you pleasure is us trusting in your Son, the Lord Jesus. And to you, the ultimate offense of our lives would be that we never came to trust in Him. Oh, show us our need, we pray. And for any who have already seen that need, show us again the wonder of your grace to helpless men and women and teenagers and boys and girls like ourselves. Hear us as we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.